Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, good evening and welcome to the Chels. There's such a feeling of deja vu about this. I'm sure I've done this week's podcast, haven't I? Hmm, maybe someone can help me answer this. Andy, does this feel very familiar to you? Do you think we've done this podcast already today? Mm, Well, it is take two, isn't it? We both got up very early this morning, did the podcast. It was brilliant. Perhaps the best we've ever done. But nobody will ever hear it because I didn't hit record. And so it all went off into the, a vacuum, a void, and it will be consigned to to the dustbin of history. Um, so, yeah, very much take two. No, absolutely. But I know the feeling, that there's that feeling that it was probably the greatest one we ever did. I remember, you know, I worked with Ralph Steadman, and one night we, we chat a lot on Skype. Who's Ralph Steadman, Kerry? He's an listeners. artist and illustrator, famous for working with Hunter S. Thompson and doing the illustrations for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um top person i've done three books with him and we'd spend a lot of time talking to each other and one night we came up with this joke that honestly was the funniest joke of all time and we were cracking up laughing jackie was in the other room she heard it she was laughing and after about five or ten minutes just hysterical laughter he said write it down because he always tells me write everything down and i went to write it and i couldn't remember it and suddenly we had lost the funniest joke in the world and it was the funniest joke in the world so if anyone sees it lying around anywhere that's ours but it is amazing when things uh, just don't go according to plan isn't it there you go so let's do it all again okay look here's my idea and i think you'll back me up on this why don't we instead of starting with tottenham why don't we start with last night because It was the game that's just been, and we are here in the glow of the day after what really was a bit of an object lesson for us uh, against Bayern Munich. And 
Did you have many fears going into the game? Were you realistic? Were you expecting us to be given a a bit of a a masterclass? Or were you thinking, no, we've beaten Spurs. We can beat anybody. No, very much the former. I I came in with my expectations well and truly managed. Bayern are a very, very good team. Uh, A much more developed uh, team than we are. Um, And I thought we would struggle uh, and it it proved to be the case we were utterly schooled by a far superior team that's not to say that we embarrassed ourselves or that we played particularly badly frankly they were just much much better than us and we got taught a lesson and I think it was an interesting experience for our very young and callow team who hopefully will have some takeaways from it and will go away and think about the level at which they need to aspire but isn't this the, the whole point? You know, people talk about a learning curve. Well, this game is an object lesson in what a learning curve is. That mm. these young players, who may have thought they're at the top of their game for, for their age and, and doing well in the Premiership, they come up against a team like Bayern, and suddenly they hopefully will not walk away despondent, but will walk away going, that is what I have to aspire to. That is the level I have to get to to really believe myself at the top of my game. Well, if they walk away despondent, they're not professional footballers because professional footballers always need to be learning. They always need to be developing, not just technically, but in terms of character and experience. So I would think that a lot of those players, in fact, all of those players in our team have come through youth football, development football, have been out in loan, have played in some cases for big for big clubs, in some cases have won World Cups. So there's no nobody in there I think that would go away from that despondent and with their heads down. I think that the message from the management from Frank Lampard, who himself has, has won everything uh not a World Cup, but he's won pretty much everything else, um, I think the message from him would be that's the level to which you need to aspire. That is what an elite European football team looks like. That's the level at which you need to play if you're going to win the very highest trophies. And I guess also it, it was interesting in the fact that he went out with the same side as, as against Spurs. And we've done that once before this season and it hasn't worked twice running. And so it proved again... I, I was quite surprised. I've, I've just had a been online, um, and I was looking at people were slagging off Frank for his team selection. And you think, what is wrong with people? Sometimes in this world, you come up against sides that are better than you. That is just how it is. But to even suggest that Frank doesn't know what he's doing, or that you know it's ooh, it's all too much for him, I, I think that's just nonsense, don't you? I think that he's hamstrung a little bit by the squad that he's got. Not not in terms of the quality of players, but just the depth of the squad. Because if you look at the team from last night, yes, it was unchanged. But who would you have bought in? I mean, you could have bought in Christian Pulisic, but he's injured. You could have bought in N'Golo Kante, but he's injured. You could have started more, uh, uh, Tammy Abraham, but he's been injured. Uh, you know, perhaps there's an argument to say that Tamore could have come into defence, but I think that's marginal. Alonso played very well and was an attacking threat against Spurs, so th- I think his his selection was uh, uh, fairly guaranteed. As Piliqueta had that level of European experience that was probably needed, would you have put Willian in? Perhaps, perhaps you might have put Willian in, but there's not a huge amount of options 
for Frank in that team. So saying that he picked the wrong team, I think he's he's really limited by what he's got. Yeah, and also, let's not forget, Frank has walked into a situation whereby he's inherited the remnants of three managers' squads and then has the youngsters. Now, it's going to take him at least one, two, probably three transfer windows to start seeing where he can get to with his team. And I think we have to buy into this and allow him the time to adjust, develop and learn because that's surely what football is about. We've had so many comings and goings at the club, as so many other clubs have as well. And the one thing you can say is we can, and I hate to say this, we can learn from Liverpool at the moment what they've done with Klopp and the team is incredible because Klopp came in he had a a variable first season he was there and thereabouts winning some losing some no consistency and it's taken him what three and a half four years to get to this stage and that is because they stuck with him and let him see if he could get his vision to where he wanted it yeah Liverpool's an interesting example because they spent big money, but they identified the areas where they needed to spend big money. And, and the real game changers for them were buying a goalkeeper that would replace Mignolet, who who had just become a bit of a liability. They bought Allison, and then you know the really big move they made was to buy a centre back in in Van Dyke, which completely changed everything for them. That gave them the solidity at the back to allow those creative front running destructive forward players a chance to you know to really play with freedom so yes I mean I think that's the key somebody pointed out that since 2012 there's been a chronic level of underinvestment in Chelsea but I would say at the end of 2012 that that team was probably coming coming to its end we had aging players in Drogba and John Terry to a certain extent you know and a lot of players that were hugely underperforming Torres and, and, and others and if you look at the team that started the Champions League final in 2012 it's an absolute miracle that we won you know if you think about uh, Jose Basingua so there's a helicopter coming over you can probably oh, hear that very loudly is that just hovering, checking your recording <laughs> hovering over my uh, hovering over my office um, so so you know that team was already on the way down and I think the big mistake that Chelsea made was not identify the areas that we need to uh, to replace those players and and, and and when they did make buys that probably weren't as good as they could have been so there has been a level of underinvestment in the squad as you say, there has been a, a certain amount of churn when it comes to managers bringing players in and letting players go. And we all know about Mourinho and his letting go of key players that, you know, you, you despair at the players that he let go. Um, and, you know, so, so Frank's inherited a bit of a mess, to be honest. And the philosophy and the thinking of the club is clearly, let's have a go with homegrown players Let's let's go with youth. Let's have a let's build the nucleus of a team that can be around for a long time, and let's augment that team with some really strategic purchases in the transfer market. So you're right. We have to trust the process, and we have to give it a couple of years before we fully judge what Frank Lampard is able to do with this team, with this squad. Yeah, and you look at uh, what he's already done. Apparently, he identified Hakim Ziyech as a player that he wanted. The club have gone out, and that deal is is apparently complete now. Um, And that's quite an exciting kind of player to see Frank go for. I'm sure we'll see the defence bolstered in the summer, but Ziyech, he's a good player. And he's also one of those players who's got 
as many goals as he has assists, just about. Um, well, that's a problem, isn't it? You know, we haven't got goal scorers all over the pitch. We know that Kovacic doesn't score goals, that Jorginho doesn't score goals, that Kante only chips in with the occasional goal. That, you know, really a lot of the responsibility has, has rested on... Tammy Abraham this season Mason Mount hasn't scored as many goals as perhaps we hoped he would have done where the focus has got to be you know at the top of the pitch in the attacking part of our side is who can score goals and and we need we need to bring that in yeah I think so and actually that takes us into into the game because um you know Giroud he he was uh, picked as as the starter after his exertions against top uh, Tottenham um did it seem like a game too far, or was it just it didn't matter who played up front yesterday for us? The way that Bayern played, they were always going to control our players. And, and Giroud had a, a had a tough old game. As great as he was against Tottenham, it was not really the perfect game for him. He was looking for flick-ons and, and trying to link up play and hold it up. But we came up against a very strong side and really didn't give him much service at all. Well, yes, but I would also say that, particularly in the first half, Bayern's defence looked a little bit ropey. They made a couple of really big errors, particularly Manuel Neuer in goal, kicking it out to our players. And if we'd have had a little bit more pace up front, we might have been able to exploit that. One thing that Olivier Giroud does not have is any pace. So you're right, his job was to hold the ball, to, to flick it on, that almost came off a couple of times from midfield runners with Barkley and Mount but but not quite and him not being able to have the pace to run the channels or to get beyond the back four who were you know up on the halfway line meant that we were very restricted and he was very isolated so not his fault that's just not his game he's very much a box player holding the ball up and laying it off in the box or or you know as we know he's magnificent in the air um and and in around the six yard area what he's not good at is with his you know facing towards goal 50 60 yards out and being expected to run the channels that's not what he does so we were always on a bit of a loser but then you look at Tammy Abraham who is coming back from injury clearly couldn't start and play 90 minutes although he did come on for for 20 minutes um and Mishi Batshuayi who just looks like a liability at the moment and the times that we've tried to play him have been a pretty much a disaster so again Frank completely hamstrung with the striking options available to him yeah and 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 throughout the team uh, it, it was a it was a a real day of reckoning I think as high as we were after Tottenham and I think we just needed that win and three points to just stop the rot. Um, there was a, a lowness about understanding just where we are as a football team. I mean, there were there were still some really good performances against Bayern. Um, for me in particular, I would say Kovacic was fantastic. And I thought Mason Mount showed exactly what he's got about him. He's still got a lot to learn, but... He is still in his first season in the Premiership and he's playing against Bayern Munich and he didn't look out of place. Well, of the younger players in the team, he he was the most uh, composed, I thought. I thought Rhys James had a torrid time up against those pacey uh, left-sided players at Bayern Munich. He just got rinsed every time and I think some of that was down to experience. Some of that was down to the occasion, perhaps, but he didn't have a fun night at all. I thought Tammy, when he came on, looked all out of sorts and didn't cover himself in glory in the box, didn't get to some of those crosses, didn't didn't make the right decisions. And of, of those younger players, I thought it was um, Mason Mount that rose to the occasion 
more than the others. I mean, still a lot to learn, as you say, but encouraging signs, and he was brilliant against Tottenham as well. So, so that was good. I thought Christensen was okay, but again, against that attacking lineup, he was always going to struggle. Well, at least we didn't get seven put past us, so that's that's something. Small yeah, exactly. Um, and I still think my favourite chant of the the night was the one nil, and you effed it up. You know, uh, that's something we'll always have over Bayern, I guess. Mm. Um, but uh, but yeah, and I, I thought it was a, such a, a mixed performance because we actually also looked nervous. Um, I think there were. Well, I think we. I think. Well, I don't know. In the first half, I thought we were okay. The first half, I you know, at the end of the first half, I. I tweeted out that you know that was that was a really good display from us. You know that we were under a little bit of pressure. We rode our luck a little bit. You know Thomas Muller headed onto the bar. There was a couple of good saves from Willie Caballero. Um, but but we you know we fought hard. We had a decent shape and we looked like we were containing them. And they looked a little bit ropey at the back and possibly going to give us an option or two to to exploit. So at the end of the first half, I wasn't thinking that we were going to struggle too badly. It just fell to pieces in the second half when they upped their game. Yeah. I mean, again, we're not quite a 90-minute team at the moment. And actually, yesterday, I'm I'm not sure we're even a 45-minute team. Um, But that happens when you come up against teams that are just better than you. They were better than us. Look, there's no point going on social media and moaning about the players and lambasting the manager and coating off the board and just tearing your hair out and having a meltdown. You've got to look at our team, compare them to their team, and just accept that Bayern Munich are an elite European team with every chance of winning the Champions League and are better than us and taught us a lesson on the night we were schooled. You Sometimes you just have to accept that, however biased and partisan you are. If you go into a game like that and at the end of that game saying, you know, we should have, we should have won or, you know, there was a few people saying, oh, we should have taken the game to them or we should have stopped them but come on behave yourself just look at the game in front of you and accept sometimes that you're not good enough i actually think they've got the makeup of potential champions league winners this year of course they have you no, know but, of course they have but they're better than they have been for a few years and um you know they, they have got some who's your favorite player i suppose if i was going to pick one player i'd have out of their side it would be alfonso davis yeah. oh my gosh he's How great quick. I mean, He's unbelievably quick. I'd, I'd go for Thiago in the midfield. I thought he was amazing. Alcantara, I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And, of course, you've got to look at Gnabry. Why on earth did Arsenal let Gnabry go? I mean, I know we let De Bruyne go and Salah and, and all the others, but Gnabry's a £100 million player. You know, he's insanely good. How, he didn't even really get a game at Arsenal. It's insane. Well, he, he, and also, you know, Tony Pulis didn't get the best out of him at West Brom. I amazing. Mean, it is amazing, but it also shows, you know, there's a player who's obviously his career was drifting and suddenly gets let go by West Brom and goes off and, and reinvents himself. And suddenly you look at him and you go, my God, that guy's got to be a hundred million pound player. It, yeah. it is incredible. And I think that's also an object lesson for our players, isn't it? To show, okay, you've got to a certain level. Now, you know, to be the top in Europe you're not at that level yet. So you move on and you get better and you work at it. And no, in fact, I don't want to eulogise about Bayern Munich too much. I mean, they, they are a very, very powerful, very rich club who have a, almost a monopoly in the Bundesliga, can choose you know, uh, pretty much any player they want from that league um, and have the firepower to buy 
uh, the best players in the world. So it's not as if they're this you know plucky little side that are developing great players. They've gone out and bought players. Now I do completely uh, accept that they are a brilliant, brilliant side. And you know, as my son said, uh, you know every player in every position would be in top five of those players in the world um and you know there's there's no doubt in it but you know but again they're they're a very very powerful club and we were that club you know we were that club between 2005 and 2012 we were that club and we have somewhat fallen off a cliff and are having to rebuild and that is the rebuilding process that we all have to accept we have to accept that and stop going on social media and and having a meltdown and tearing our hair out and gnashing our teeth because we are rebuilding this team we are in transition shut up get on with it accept it support the team yeah, I agree. Okay, last point on Bayern Munich uh, was the one thing that did slightly upset me was how we didn't keep it together and in in certain respects with our discipline. I'm um, talking in particular of Jorginho, totally pointless yellow card for losing it, and then uh, Alonso and his red card. Both both frustration, weren't they? Jorginho, I think, was incredibly frustrated. We saw a little bit in the Spurs game where he was... You know, getting cross and getting angry. I think he takes it very, very seriously. And I kind of like that passion. I like, I like that. I wish we had a little bit more mongrel in the team. You know, a little bit more, a few more players showing their teeth a little bit more. Yes, it's a silly booking. Um, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter now. But yes, it was a silly booking. And in another game, it might have cost us. I think the Alonso one was silly and petulant and completely unnecessary. So, so yeah, it's, it's disappointing. But, pff, you know, really, does it matter now? No, I guess not. So, you know, we move on. Anyway, well, let's move on to our man on the spot, Mr. Nizar Kinsella, who has this little roundup from behind the scenes. Nizar Kinsella here, goals Chelsea correspondent, reporting for the Chelsea. I've just been to Stamford Bridge and watched uh, on as a, and worked as a journalist in a massive game. Um, it was great to be back in the Champions League, great to be at occasions like that, and everyone and their dog wanted to be in the media room. Uh, it was rammed. Um, you know, you couldn't even move for the amount of people that were in there. A ton of people travelled from overseas to watch it, not just Germany. Um, and I think a lot of people wanted answers about where this Chelsea side are at uh, compared to a top side in Europe and we emphatically got the answer a 3-0 defeat um, Frank Lampard fronted up, uh, Jorginho fronted up and Olivier Giroud after the game. So uh, we got their takes on it and uh, Frank Lampard was very honest. He said only Matteo Kovacic showed uh, that he could play at that level in that game. And um, I think I think a lot of people would agree with that. Um, there was also a sense that he wanted his players to go away and think about what they can do to get to that next level. Because, uh, you know, this is a, a, a big chance for them, you know, a big learning curve, a big lesson. Uh, and that was a word that was used a lot. Uh, they were taught a lesson. Uh, and, and, and yeah, the, there was a sense that they should go away and see how they competed against a world-class player. You know, how did Christensen do against Lewandowski? How did um, Marcos Alonso do against Kingsley Coman, etc., etc.? So, uh, yeah, I think that that was sort of the message from Frank. Um, obviously, it, it, it's a big blow. And, I, you know, when Jorginho was speaking, you could see that he was a little bit downbeat, but he was saying all the right things he was saying uh, let's let's uh, let's move on uh, we're still a good team Bayern are better than us they were better than us and they deserved it but um, we need to move on we've still got things to play for this season um, it's a big blow to get up from and that that's what remains to be seen in the next few days but um, certainly 
you know, Olivier Giroud, maybe even somebody will best saying that it's almost mission impossible for the second leg. So I'll be travelling to Germany, I'll be travelling there. Uh, and, you know, it almost feels like there's not a lot riding on the game, but certainly I feel Chelsea have to play their strongest team, have to go for it. You know, you never know, you might get an early goal and then it gets a bit nervy. So, uh, yeah very difficult night um it was you know it's been an up and down run they haven't strung two wins together chelsea there's still a question mark over whether there's a long-term quality enough for this club to get through to the later rounds of the champions league you know after the last 16 eliminations in the last four attempts so uh yeah a lot of reflecting to do for both players the club and frank lampard uh it was a it was a painful night that's for sure and we're back. Well, you know, there we go. I, I guess Frank's taking it on the chin um, and, and accepts it. Silly. I mean, he knows, doesn't he? He's not silly. He, know, he, know, he knows where his team is and he knows where Bayern Munich are. He's saying exactly what we're saying. You know, we got beaten by a better team. We need to be better. We need to aspire. This is the level that we need to get to and we're going to try and do that. I mean, that's why I like about Frank. He's not He's not deluded. He's not. He doesn't hide behind excuses. He'll come out and he'll say it and he tells it like it is and I think we have to respect that. Yeah, and and for me, Frank is so close to having finished as a player. You, you watch him, and and it's almost like he's thinking, "Oh, what should I be saying?" And then realizing he's the manager because he he's often very smiley in interviews, even if we've had a bad result. And he hasn't quite switched over to being the full manager in manager mode yet, has he? In, in his press conferences, I love it. I love the way he talks because I think he's very open and very honest. And if he stays like that, then I, I think that'd be wonderful. But I wonder if the management structure and the way that it all works will eventually alter him. Possibly. Um, I get the sense that Frank is an incredibly authentic human being, that what you see is what you get. I don't get a sense that there's any games being played or, you know, I've spoken to Frank. I've, I've been lucky enough to have a conversation with him and he in real life is exactly as he is as, as he is in front of the cameras he's just honest he'll, he'll give you a straight answer to a straight question um, and, and as you say I really like that about him he's at the early stage of his career and a lot of people have forgotten that he's at the early stage of his career he's been given a big task and a big brief to bring these young players through he's got you know, a fan base that are incredibly entitled after years and years of success who expect automatic trophies and automatic wins. And, you know, we're just in a different place now, but I think he's handling it and dealing with that incredibly well. Yeah, and long may everyone give him space. Anyway, it's space now for our ad break. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. 
And we're back. Okay, so that's enough of Munich and all that sort of shenanigans. Let's get on we'll with the series. We'll always have Munich, though, won't we? Oh, my gosh. We will always have it. Uh, that was just... It's interesting. I, I was... Uh, reading some reports of roundups of of that night from all the players that played in it and you know it's incredible you can you can feel the glow just off their words describing that evening Mm. um i think one of the most telling things that i read was apparently abramovich in the dressing room afterwards said to them well that's the champions league this year now let's really progress and ironically that's the first real false step from Abramovich that we haven't progressed from 2012. That's and what I was saying. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, exactly what I was saying. It's 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 been you know a fairly downward trajectory. We did win stuff in that intervening period. It's not like we didn't win anything between 2012 and 2019. But I think we ceased to become the dominant team that we were between 2005 and 2012. Yeah, well, you know, we all know football is cyclical. It just seems as though when you look back on it, our cycle was not that long, really. But, Mm. you know, we're we're still considered... A decent side and that's got to be something isn't it you know but we we do still have something about the name Chelsea and we'll come again because we understand now what we need to do I don't think it's going to be 50 years before we win another title or anything like that do you know no, you, it isn't I mean look you and I went 27 years without winning anything you know and so we're fully aware of, of how low you can go as a football supporter and um, you know we know as well that that having experienced some low times some dark times some bad times how much we appreciate the good times and unfortunately there's a generation of Chelsea fans who've been brought up since 2005 expecting to win things every year football's not like that it just isn't it's cyclical you know teams come they become legendary and then they fade and then you've got to rebuild and how you rebuild is 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 the interesting thing and these days unless you're a sovereign wealth fund or an independent nation-state backing a football club, it's very difficult year after year to pull that level of money into a club. You're seeing it with Man City at the moment. Man City are not the club they were even last year. They're having to rebuild, you know, and the problems they've got at the moment with the litigation with FIFA and UEFA, you know, it, it's, it's, it happens to all clubs. You know, you and I grew up in, in the 80s and the 90s with Manchester United and Liverpool completely dominating things. And what happened to them? They, you know, they, they both slid away it happens with all football clubs it's not something that you can rely on and expect to go on forever you just have to appreciate it when it's good yeah well that's true well i mean you know tottenham look at tottenham um they used to oh no they never did um (laughs) (laughs) so yeah (laughs) so moving on to the tottenham game um there were there were a lot of changes there and he he changed the system he changed the team uh he went to the three at the back or five depending which way you want to describe it um seemed to take on Mourinho in the same way we thought uh as he had done at um at their ground um was this a real strange one for Mourinho to walk into? First time out with Tottenham at Chelsea. How did you feel about him? I mean, we kind of knew that he'd probably be negative, but... Well, he said s- before the game, didn't he, that he knew that, that Frank was going to play through at the back. That he, you know, he's, he did this whole kind of mind games thing of saying, yeah, I already know what you're going to do. I know what your tactics are. You always do this when this happens. Um, and Frank duly did it, and... And Tottenham couldn't respond. Now we know we have to put a sort of have to put a, a level caveat. Of caution, caveat and caution on this by saying there was no Harry Kane, 
There was no Son. There was no real definitive striking option in that team. But I thought they set up really badly. I thought their shape was really poor. I thought they didn't offer anything in terms of energy. I couldn't see what the defiant tactic was. I thought it was a really poor strategic performance from Mourinho. Yeah, and they they couldn't stick to their task. That's what I thought was interesting, because he was trying to set them up in banks, but they were all over the place. They were being pulled out of position, out of shape. Giroud caused them so many problems. They, well, they Giroud just... and Mount pressing in 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 their you know in, in, right right on their goal line and and their eighteen yard line pressing game from Mount and Giroud was brilliant and Barkley to a degree. You know the the three of them just keeping them pinned back and making them kick the ball long and losing possession. That happened time and time again. And and I was going to come on and say I think Olivier Giroud probably deserved man of the match for the impact that he made with his goal and and and, and his general all round play. But Mason Mount's pressing game. I bought him a very very close second yeah and actually a very close and second Kovacic as well, well i was it? just going to say third perhaps Kovacic, who who for me has been the revelation of the season uh, we've said it a few times but i love the way that he seems to be playing with a freedom and the way he marauds forward i'd just like to see that a bit more allow people to give him the time and the space to do it because he terrifies teams he terrified munich when he did maraud forward he's got such great ability to to go left or right and to slalom through tackles a bit like Essien in a way. Yeah, but the thing about Essien, Essien had goals in him. And I can't see Kovacic's goals. So it's all right to maraud forward. What are you going to do with the ball when you get there? Well, you know, he does give it. He does, he's not marauding forward. you see my point, right? Yeah, Which yeah. is that, you know, Michael Essien had a final product when he, when he, when he marauded forward. Um, yes, I think it's absolutely brilliant. What, listen, I'm a big, big fan of Kovacic. And I think him, him picking the ball up and... and, and powering us forward is brilliant I just want to see not just him William Barkley three or four of our you know so-called attacking players have a final product have some kind of plan about what you're going to do with the ball when you maraud forward because it's exciting when he picks it up and he brings it forward and some of his play particularly against Munich I thought when he was slotting the ball through his product there was brilliant I just want to see more of it I, actually, I, I just want to just hone in on a name you mentioned there because there's something I, I saw this afternoon away from the game about William. Um, apparently, he's come out. There's there's a big interview in one of the Brazilian papers which I was reading, and he says that Chelsea have offered him a two year contract at the age of 33, and he wants a three year contract. And he says that this could be a real problem for him staying. Well, and, I don't blame him. Yeah, but hold on. Uh, do you remember, it wasn't that long ago, anyone over 30 would only get a one-year contract. So we're actually breaking our rules by giving him a, or offering him a two-year contract. Yeah, but you know, I don't think he has to be grateful for that. I, I, th- I think William's got a lot of football left in him. I don't think it's necessarily at Chelsea. I think that he will probably make way for... You know, for Zajac, for you know, for for Callum Hudson Odoi when he comes back, for Pulisic when he comes back, we probably will buy more attacking options. He's going to be a squad player moving forward. There's no doubt about that, and so he's probably thinking, you know, I I, I want to go out and and find a club that A will pay me a huge amount of money and B will let me play. I yeah, don't I blame him for that at all. No, no, no neither do I. But I, I take your point about the one year contracts, but you know. 
paper talk as well, isn't it? Well, th- no, this is a, a strict interview with him. It's, it's supposedly been verified. The, these are his words. So it's intriguing. He, wants, he says he wants to stay, but he wants to stay if it's three years. So yeah, they won't give him three years. <clears throat> I can't see it. So I think he's pushing the situation. But, but back to, back well, to what the... he's trying to do is make it Chelsea's fault. Yeah, what, exactly. What he's basically trying to do is basically say, I really, really wanted to stay, but they wouldn't give me the contract. So, guys, I needed to go. That's what all footballers do. Are you saying he got advice from somebody like I, you? I would imagine his agent probably got <laughs> in his ear and said, make it Chelsea's fault. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. What, that's what I reckon. But the, the Spurs game, the, the other person I, I'd like to uh, mention in dispatches is um, is Andre, Andreas Christensen. I, I think he's developing again again let's not talk about munich but he's developing again we're seeing the progress of him as a player he's starting to look imperious when he moves around um i've been impressed by his return to the team i think he's been excellent for last five or six games i thought he was okay against munich as well to be honest he's becoming a much more of a presence at the back he's physically seeming to be a little bit more stronger he's he's more willing to throw himself about a bit he's always had good feet he's always been a doubt in the air but that part of his game seems to have improved immeasurably so yeah he's looking like the real deal let's hope that it continues he's a great example of giving players games um of sticking with them and 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 saying we're going to give you games and we want you to you know to get match fit get premier league fit and show us what you can do um there was a period under Conte where he sort of played him to death and that was probably a little bit early wasn't it um and then you know he was out the team uh, in and out the team and then had an injury so it's been a difficult period for him but i think you have to give credit where credit's due he's really risen to the occasion in the last five or six games yeah the, the one person who i think hasn't quite worked too well since he's been back is rudiger um i don't know whether that's just because he's been out injured so much he missed pre-season all those things but here we are in february and he just doesn't quite look up to speed no, he's making a lot of errors, poor decision-making, poor positioning. He's not, he's not been good or not been as good as we know he can be. I honestly thought he would be the rock in the middle of that defence, but he's not looking like it at the moment. I don't know what that is or why that is, whether it's a mental issue uh, in terms of him not trusting the people around him and trying to do too much. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but you're absolutely right. I don't think that he's playing at the level that he's capable of. No, well, let's hope he can get back and find find where he should be, uh, because I think so many of our problems stem from that defence. And if we can get the defence right, and we may have to wait till next season for that, um, and there might be one or two buys that will certainly sort certain problems out, um, but we'll just have to wait and see. Um, the other thing is, Giroud had a fantastic game, and Tammy came back on after his injuries. Now, Tammy, he's, you know, and it was the same against Munich as well. He's not looking quite right. He's looking a little bit headless again. He reminds me of when he played that game for England, his first cap, where he ran around like mad, but didn't actually get anywhere or do anything. And I'm just worried he's trying to make up for having been out and he's definitely trying to impress. And I I think we need to see him work on certain aspects of his game. Now, the six-yard box, for me, I think is as important to be owned by a centre-forward as the goalkeeper will feel he should own it. It should be where their battle is, you know. And we don't score enough six-yard box goals, do we? Especially from Tammy. Well, certainly if you look at the Spurs 
and the Munich games, he had, I think, three or four opportunities to get on the end of really good crosses that were put in by either Marcus Alonso or uh, or Rhys James and didn't and didn't attack the ball enough. Um, was waiting for the ball to come to him rather than making the move that would get him to the ball. And you're right, he needs to be in that six-yard box. He needs to be attacking one of the posts. He's not doing it and he's not getting on the end of it. And that's a concern because he's not going to get a lot of chances at this level of football. One or two, three a game maybe. He's got to convert them. He has to, if he wants to be the starting choice for Chelsea Football Club, and I truly believe he can be for years to come, he has to start converting those chances. That's his job. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. That's why he gets selected ahead of everybody else. Has to take that responsibility. Nobody else in the team is scoring goals. He has to score them. And if he doesn't, then questions need to be asked. And I think it's fair enough that you do so. Yeah, and he still has a look of a man who thinks, oh, I've missed that one, I'll get the next one, which is, which is great because that's how strikers have to cope. They have to put bad misses out of their way. But at the moment, he's not getting enough chances in a game to be certain that another chance is going to come along. And when you play someone like Munich or uh, top teams, you may only get one chance in a game. That's my, point. And, my whole yeah, point. You yeah. know, and I think that his body language is, is is saying that he knows. He knows this. Don't get me wrong, I'm down on Tammy. I think Tammy's great. You know, I've 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 always held my hands up about my misreading of Tammy's uh previous seasons, but I think he's he's the real deal. I just don't think that he is just in the zone at the moment. He needs to want it more and get there and desire it more and be more of a presence up front i think you know he's an elite striker he needs to act like one yeah it's true so okay um the tottenham game it had all the atmosphere that one could want from a game but the actual atmosphere from the crowd look it was a real step up from the man new game which was a travesty last week i went on about friendship scars do me a favor seeing What's man a friendship scar it's a half half scar oh, why don't you call it a half half scar no because that's an actual no, name no it's not its actual name is a friendship scar only, only amongst bellens well then you should know it um but it's kind a half of like, and half scarf everybody knows it's a half and half scarf right but apparently the real term for them is a friendship scarf which i think is completely wrong in itself anyway <laughs> this idea that man you Colours should be down our end you know it, it it was horrible looking around and seeing them and it was it was it was football tourism at its worst so you know i, I don't know how you feel about these sort of I things feel, but, well you know how i feel about it i feel very strongly about it i think stanford bridge is a bit of a disgrace at the moment i don't think that we you know in in living memory almost haven't created the atmosphere that i know we're capable of and a lot of that is down to Yes, uh, a very ageing season ticket fan base. Most season ticket holders are over 50 and, you know, they are not the natural singers. I think we're overpricing or, or sort of pricing younger fans out of the game. They can't afford to come to the game and participate. I think that, you know, a lot of those uh, tickets, particularly for nights like the Champions League, and it's the Champions League that I got quite upset about, season tickets holders aren't taking up their allocation. That allocation is going to neutrals, uh, to uh, to people that want to come along and film the game on their iPhones and take selfies and wear half and half scarves. Or worse, it's going to supporters of the opposition. Um, and I think we all t- need to take a responsibility that that we need to use those tickets for Chelsea fans. We have to do it. I understand there's a pricing issue. 
I understand that it's expensive, but we need that core of diehard fans that want to go to those big nights. And there's no bigger night than Bayern Munich under the lights in the knockout phases of the Champions League, surely. Why aren't you going to those games? Doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, well, you know, at the same time, it is just expensive for a lot of people. And uh, I just think they over charge for these tickets i agree i I listen i think the pricing is an issue but i also think that if you are lucky enough privileged enough call it what you want to have a season ticket to chelsea football club you need to make every effort to get to those big games i can understand if you don't want to go and see um you know uh, stockport united in the early rounds of the of the fa cup i get that but when it's Bayern munich in the knockout phases of the champions league you have to if you're a season ticket holder i think make every effort to go to the game yeah i also think that pushing the kickoff time to eight o'clock doesn't help either people have to well no 15 minutes makes a hell of a difference for certain last trains um i can only only if you live in ludicrous places like you do yeah, well, there you go. I'm talking ludicrous here, OK? Well, I mean, how many people do you think come from Northamptonshire to Chelsea? How many people 20, do you 30, see 30,000. <laughs> I tell you, it's just rammed. It's just you with your picnic basket on the train in first class coming down to, to Stamford Bridge. To I don't go first class. And actually, most of the time, it's full of West Ham fans. It's horrible. <laughs> Look, you know my point, right? It's like, yeah. you know, use, use your allocation for those big games. For the really big games... There were so many season ticket holders I know that sit around me that didn't take their allocation up. Those tickets went for however they went to half and half scarf wankers and to opposition fans. And it's just not acceptable. And that does cause a problem with atmosphere in the ground. It, it just, it, I, doesn't, I don't understand it. We've had so many amazing nights. If you think back to, you know, in recent memory, Liverpool, Barca, Napoli. Those games were, the place was rocking. I haven't heard that place rock properly for a very long time. No, it's true. So anyway, talking of grand nights, you know, this brings us to our little pace of the show where we do a little roundup. One of our listeners, friends, uh, comes in with their first worst and best Chelsea games. And I got a, a message this week from a Mr. K Dixon. And I thought, Hold on, this is quite interesting, because, of course, we've had Kerry on on the show in the past. Um, but it turned out to be Craig Dixon, Craig with a K, who got in touch. Which oh, he spelled his name wrong then, isn't he? Yeah. You it's like you, that. spelling your name wrong. You don't spell Kerry with a C. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Um, sorry, Andrew. Um, just getting names wrong. Um, sorry, Craig. Couldn't that's, help. that's okay. So anyway, here is Craig Dixon's first worst and best Chelsea games. Hi, I'm Craig Dixon, Chelsea fan of over 30 years and writer in a CFC UK fanzine for the last 13 years. Here are my first worst and best Chelsea games. First was Middlesbrough in the Zenith Data Systems Cup final at Wembley on 25th of March 1990, which we won 1-0 thanks to a Tony Dorigo free kick. I've still got the programme, a scarf my dad bought me along Wembley Way and a fully intact match ticket. As I recall, the old boy operating the turnstiles letting me go through without tearing off the side of it. Uh, Obviously, not every football sport is lucky enough to say their first match ended with their team winning silverware, especially at the home of football and particularly as a Chelsea fan in that era. Though I don't think anyone accused me of being a glory hunter at the time, given the status of the competition. But to me as a six-year-old, seeing Dave Besant lifting up that huge trophy in front of nearly 80,000 people and all that excitement meant it might as well have been the FA Cup and World Cup rolled into one as far as I was concerned. My worst game was Liverpool in the 2005 Champions League semi-final second leg at Anfield. 
And it's strange because even knowing the pain of the Monaco defeat at the same stage the year before, it didn't feel to me at the time like this tie was going to mean just as much to me as it eventually did. Uh, maybe because we had only clinched the Premier League at Bolton just a few days previously and that was the holy grail for us at the time given we'd been uh, waiting 50 years for a top flight title. Uh, perhaps there's also an element of not actually expecting to lose given we were so many points ahead of them in the table. We'd done the double over them in the league and beat them in the League Cup final a few weeks prior. Uh, but I think the manner of their victory with the ghost goal, Ida's late miss and travelling back through the city to the train station and seeing people out in their cars with flags waving and horns hooting started to make me realise just what a blow it was, particularly as I got home past 3am and was up for work a couple of hours later. I think every subsequent Champions League knockout and the matter of most of them just made the memories of that night feel even worse. But this one hurt the most for me as I'd always maintain we were the best team in Europe in that calendar year. However, as we eventually found out to our benefit, you can win this tournament when you're far from the best team in it. Which takes me to my best game, which is Barcelona in the 2012 Champions League semi-final second leg. I had pretty much no expectations of actually winning this tie. And whilst the 1-0 first leg win gave a bit of hope, it wasn't like previous eras where we were good enough to be getting to Champions League finals and winning them, or so I thought. I remember walking to the stadium and unlike my previous visits where the rivalry had now grown between the two clubs, we were getting dogs abuse from the home fans outside the bars lining the walk to the ground and had a few things launched at us. And it was then I realised that my wallet, containing about €100, Euros, my bank cards, but most importantly my match ticket, was not in my pocket. So after double-checking multiple times, I realised I'd fallen foul of one of the notorious local pickpockets. So I went to the ticket office there, told them, but they didn't want to know. So I was panicking and didn't know what I was going to do when suddenly a tout appears waving an away ticket in my face, demanding hundreds of euros for it. So I was convinced it was mine that he'd pinched off me and filled with adrenaline and a few hours worth of Australia, I snatched it off him and marched towards my pals at the turnstiles who couldn't believe what they were witnessing. I think the tout knew better to, than to even attempt to get it back off me because nothing was going to stop me from being there to see this game and thankfully nothing did. Throughout the game itself, with all our injuries, the JT red card, going two goals down in the first half and considering a penalty in the second, I was convinced we were going to get hit by a 2009-style sucker punch and even just before the ball broke for Torres to score the goal that meant we knew we were going to Munich. My mate and I were talking about how well we'd done to take them as far as we did before the seemingly inevitable Barca winning goal, which thankfully never came. And the rest, as they say, is history. So we ended up celebrating throughout the night and a couple of us sharing a room fell asleep with dead phone batteries. So with no alarm to wake us up, we missed our flight back to Luton and had to fork out for later flights to Gatwick, which he shouted me for as I had no ways of paying myself. And from there, we traipsed to Luton to pick up the car and drove home from there. And I don't think either of us cared one bit. So thank you, Chelsea, for providing those moments and helping put those ghosts to rest. And thanks, gents, for having me on the show. Oh, Andy, I, I love the, the, the story about the Barcelona game. And, uh, you know, it, it was really interesting about, about the ticket because I, I had to email and ask him. This is what I sent him an email after I'd heard that. And I said, do you really think it was your actual ticket that you got off the tout? And he replied, I think so. I always wonder where else they would have gotten away ticket had it not been one they'd taken off me or perhaps some other poor sod. Unlike summer ways where you see or hear of spares floating around beforehand, we didn't come across any before that game. 
Obviously, I'd never advocate stealing, particularly given Mrs. Dixon is a Met Police officer. But when it comes to touts, <laughs> I don't think they could claim the moral high ground on that right. one. Right. <laughs> and, and also, I, I love that. So thank you, Craig, very much for yeah, taking thanks, Craig, part this week. Yeah, that's brilliant, mate. And, and look, uh, we, you know, we're, we're always interested in listeners giving us their first, best, worst. Um, get in touch uh, with us through uh, Twitter. is probably the best place, at Chelsea Podcast. DM us and we'll tell you how to do it. That's no problem. Or uh, follow us on Instagram at uh, at the Chelsea podcast. podcast. Is that right? Yes, yes, it is at the Chelsea podcast on Instagram. Uh, and again, message us and we'll do it. If you want to do a, a first best worst, um, we will tell you how to send your sound file in and we'll play it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love it. And actually, the Barcelona story, it reminds me of uh, oh, people go. I know get mugged off by seven-year-olds. Hmm, who could I be talking about? Yes, that was annoying. I went to the Barcelona game with you. Uh, it was the, the uh, Rijkaard game, wasn't it, when he went yeah. to the dressing room at half-time, Drogba got sent off, and oh yeah, it was a, one of those really controversial games. But we were sunning ourselves in a cafe off the Ramblas, last Ramblas, weren't we? And... Uh, I left my phone on the table and, and some seven-year-old uh, children distracted me and stole my phone, which Distra- caused all sorts, of, all sorts of hassle. Yeah, they were lost locals speaking Spanish, holding a map out, suddenly doing that classic. I was going, everyone pick your phones up. And You, you didn't say that. I did. No, you I did. didn't. Yeah, you I- 100% <laughs> didn't, Kevin. You just made that up. <laughs> it's much better Everybody this way. Everybody pick your phones up. You <laughs> yeah, never said God's that. God's sake, it's obvious. I did actually say pick your phone up. Um, I'm sure. And if I didn't, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, and then, uh, but actually it was pretty hellish once you'd lost your phone because it was really first thing in the morning, wasn't it? And oh. you had to jump through hoops just to report it being stolen. I had to go, well, I ended up having to go to the airport and, and report it to the police station there. And it was a bloke on a manual typewriter with a cigarette typing with one finger, filling in the form so I could give it to my mobile phone provider of the time. And then for, for weeks, if not months afterwards, I was getting phone calls from Spanish people because they'd obviously sold the number. Um, you know, as a, I don't know, it was a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. So keep your phones in your pockets if you go to Barcelona because it is a renowned area for distraction and pickpockets. Yeah, and you've got to be pretty naive to be done by that one. But <laughs> but we were naive in those days, young and stupid and carefree. Mm. And, okay, well, look, we're, we're running out of time now, so um, we really should go to having a, a quick thought about Bournemouth away this Saturday. Three o'clock kickoff, I think. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, interesting. They've been a bit of a bogey side over the last few years for us although we seem to do better at their place than we do at home don't we yeah well our away record generally is is better slightly better than it is at home at home we're a bit of a disaster area but away we seem to be able to raise our game um Bournemouth haven't had a particularly good season they've struggled this year there's no reason why we can't go there and put a performance in and win quite comfortably. There's, there's no reason why we can't. Whether we will or not, I don't know. It's one of those seasons, isn't it? You know, we need to start putting some back-to-back league performances together. I don't think we've done that since October. I may be wrong, but we haven't put back-to-back wins together for a very long time. It doesn't feel like a very long time. So we need to start doing that. Otherwise, we are totally going to bottle fourth place. Yeah. We are. Okay, so what's your prediction for Saturday? I think a comfortable 2-0 win. I'm going to allow myself that. Okay, well, I am going to stick with my original thought of 1-0. 
Mm. I, I just somehow we need to find a way to keep a clean sheet. I think mm. it just make a difference to everybody. You know, I, I do think Caballero isn't the answer, but I do think he hasn't done anything wrong in goal. Um, but it would just be nice to have a, a clean sheet. Mm. All right. Well, that's it. We're out of time. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me for the second time today, Andy. Um, <laughs> let's hope we don't have to do this a third time. Yeah, uh, I hope so. I haven't checked my recording yet. Okay. Right. Well, as Andy goes off to check his recording, I'll say goodbye and we'll see you all next week. Cheers then. This is a Playback Media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at Chelsea Podcast. Dot net. Sports Social Podcast Network.